Wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, there a church of God exists, even if it swarms with many faults. This is a quote attributed and adapted to John Calvin, writing in his Institutes, and one we will look at here in just a few moments. But the truth is, is that the church has many faults, doesn't it? It's easy to point out many of the faults of the church and pick those faults apart. And the church is rightly criticized for many of its faults. She's got a lot of them. And I know we could probably spend a lot of time looking at those things. This is why we have so many people say, well, we, we've got to fix the church. The only hope of the church is maybe, maybe if we go back to being like the New Testament church. That, that's the ticket. We've got to be like they were in New Testament times, lean and mean and, and, and house to house and, 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 and marginalized. And maybe that's what's going to give the church some type of resurgence. For others, it's like, well, no, what we need to do is make the church more attractive to the people of the world. We've got to build a church for the unchurched so that they'll want to come. Right now, they don't want to come in, but, but, but if we do the things that they like, if we have a high entertainment value, high production value, they'll come in to our doors. And there's a prominent pastor who has been very successful building a church for the unchurched, and he's been so successful that he has successfully unchurched the church. Let the hearer understand. Or, or maybe it's that we just got to be socially minded and socially active. And if the world sees us doing the good works of the gospel, they're going to love Jesus so much that they will come to the church. Or maybe it's just we need that really cool looking, hip, dynamic, relevant speaker like Dan who, you know, who if, if we have someone like him, you know, very unlike me, but... but but if we have someone like that, and he's a great storyteller, and just looks great on camera and on the web, and he can tell funny stories and keep it short, no more than 22 minutes and 30 seconds, then, then that will fill the church, and the church will come alive again. But here's the challenge with all of our inventions of what we think it would take for the church to experience revitalization or resurgence or to be uh, acceptable and attractable, attractive to the world. That we have to recognize that the church belongs to God and not to man. That the church is first and foremost God's idea, not ours. And as such, it is not man's to tinker with. It's not ours to mess with and reinvent in our own imagination or what it might take to make it palatable to outsiders because we need to understand what is it that Christ, the head of the church, wants for his church. And Calvin's point was that as long as a church, with warts and all, with flaws and all, bears the marks of a true and faithful church of Jesus Christ, well, there really is no valid reason to leave it. And that's profound and one we will touch on throughout our series. But Christ is the head of his church. The church was founded in his life, death, and resurrection. The church is established upon the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for those whom he redeemed. He is building his church. And what matters most in the life of the church 
is not their website, how relevant it is, or their social media presence, or their programs, or any of a number of things, or how people out there perceive a church's worship experience to be. What matters most is what the Lord says about His church. What matters most is what the Lord expects of His church and from His church. And what is it that the Lord wants His church to do? This is why we're going to spend a few months in the pastoral epistles. For they will reveal much of that to us and we desperately need this message. Now, what are the pastoral epistles? Well, the three letters of First and Second Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral epistles. And they're called the pastoral epistles because they have a lot of content that is centered around uh, the responsibilities of those who lead in the church. Like, what are church leaders supposed to do? What are the pastors, elders, deacons? How are they to lead and care for the church of Jesus Christ? And there's a lot of Christians who go, well, that's all and great, but, you know, can I just skip over that? Because I'm not a church leader. I'm not on church staff. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. I'm not deacon. I don't hold those titles. Do I really need to study these particular letters? Well, here's the deal. While there's a lot of content that is for, you could say, church leaders, that's not all it has to say. In fact, there's a whole lot of other content that is not just about church leaders or pastors. So let me give you a few reasons why we're going to study and spend the time that we're going to spend in the pastoral epistles, these particular letters, and how they pertain not just to pastors and elders and deacons or church staff or church leaders or ministry leaders, but how they pertain to every Christian that reads God's Word. First, it's really simple. We're going to read these letters and study them because they're God's Word. They're in your Bible, right? We just spent five weeks looking at God's Word and the importance of God's Word. So why would we skip over these letters that have been given to the church of Jesus Christ for our growth and edification? They are the Word of God. Everything, every matter pertaining to faith and salvation and the life of the church, things necessary for us to know and love God are found there. So we're going to study them. Second, These letters have more to do with the life of a local church than it has to do with pastoral ministry. And if you haven't really spent a lot of time in these three short letters, you might miss that fact. You might get hung up on, well, it's talking about the qualifications of an elder. I don't, that's not really about me. Well, hold on. You'll see that it absolutely is, right? Third, every member needs to know what God said about what a church is and how a church must function. If the last three years have shown us anything and revealed anything, is that many Christians have an extremely low view of the church. It has revealed how little people actually care about the church. And I'm not just talking about church members. I'm talking about a lot of church leaders. A lot of pastors will be standing before the throne, hopefully, one day. But they're going to stand before God and give an account for how they administered and cared for the flock of God during the times we faced as, as, as a world over the last three years. Fourth, it's important for every church member to understand what it is that God has called a pastor to do. I've been accused of only working Sundays. You only work one day a week, Dan. Well, what is it that a pastor is supposed to do? What has God called 
a, a pastor, ministry leader to do? What does that look like? Well, we're going to find out. Fifth, all of the characteristics pertaining to, to what it means to live a godly life are not just requirements for those in church leadership. They are for all of God's people. When we read the instructions, when we read the commands, when we read the exhortations, even if they are addressed to a leader in the church, guess what? A leader in the church is also a member of the body of Christ. And whatever pertains to them in terms of those characteristics of godliness pertain to every single follower of Jesus Christ without exemption. Sixth, and this was important. Because false teaching and teachers continue to plague the church of Jesus Christ, it's important that every believer know how to spot, how to spot false teachers and spot false teaching. You're going to see that this is probably one of Paul's greatest preoccupations in these letters. It's with the truth of the faith and how that truth must be faithfully kept, faithfully guarded and passed on to others. This is a chief concern of mine as a pastor that God's people are able to discern false teachers and false teaching. And they're everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Some subtle Some not so subtle, but I'm always amazed at how people fall continually into the trap of false teaching. So we have to be on guard for that. Now, I've titled this series, The Gospel in the Life of the Church, because it's not just about church order. In fact, what you'll see as we study these letters is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, his good news, is to shape absolutely everything about the life of the church. As people are shaped by the gospel, transformed by the gospel, as the gospel of Jesus Christ informs their life and they orient their life around it, then part of that is how are they going to conduct themselves when the church is gathered, when we're together as a people, when we're fellowshipping with one another. How does the gospel shape and inform those things? The gospel is to inform all that we are and do as the people of God both inside the church as well as outside of the church. Well, let's turn to 1 Timothy. We're going to be in the first two verses of chapter 1, the opening of this letter. Hear the words of the living God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's do a brief introduction to this letter, a little bit of background information, kind of ground us uh, into this letter, who's writing it, who's it written to, a little background information about the church and the city that it's located in that's going to help us understand what Paul is writing here a little bit better. Like other letters in the New Testament that we call epistles or letters, the typical opening formula here uh, is followed. And there we learn real quick, right, who is writing this letter. In this case, who is it? It was Paul, an apostle of the Lord. And who's he writing it to? Well, in, in most of his letters, he's addressing them to a church, Ephesus or Galatia or Philippi or Thessalonica, but here he's not writing to a church, he's writing to an individual. And here it's, it's Timothy, who he calls my true child 
in the faith. And we will look at that here in just a few minutes. And he calls him his spiritual son. Now, when was this particular letter to Timothy written? Because this has kind of been a conundrum for a lot of Bible scholars in trying to determine when was this. Because when you read Acts, Acts only goes up to a certain point. Okay, Acts 28 ends with Paul under house arrest. But we know he wasn't just under house arrest one time. He was imprisoned another time. And eventually he was imprisoned and executed. And so when was it that, that, that these circumstances occurred where Paul had to write to Timothy? Because we hear that Timothy is left in, ex, in, in Ephesus. He's to remain there. And, and a lot of scholars land on a date somewhere in the mid-60s A.D. 63, 64, 65 uh, A.D. This would kind of be after the events of Acts 28, where you find Paul under house arrest at the end of Acts. He was actually released uh, after that. And at some point, he resumes his missionary uh, excursions and journeys, and, and Timothy continues on with him, and they find their way to Ephesus, a church that Paul uh, had already established. In fact, uh, this letter was written by Paul when he was at in Philippi to Timothy, which he had left in Ephesus. Now, Timothy was one of Paul's ministry and travel companions. In fact, at the time of the writing of this letter, Timothy had been with Paul for some 14 years already. Okay, so a lot of experience there, and and he instructs Paul in this. In, uh, Paul instructs Timothy in this letter. He gives us the reason why he's left there, which we'll look at in just a few moments. Uh, but also, he says in this letter that he's to remain there until Paul's able to go back. It was Paul's desire and his hope that he would find his way back to Ephesus at some point and resume his apostolic uh, duties there. Uh, so Timothy, when we look at him here, even though we call him Pastor Timothy and we refer to Timothy as the pastor of Ephesus, he really wasn't functioning like, like you think of maybe the senior pastor or lead pastor of a church. He was functioning more in the role of an apostolic representative. In this case, he was representing Paul, an apostle of the Lord. And because he was representing Paul, Paul had imbued him with apostolic authority to be there and put things in order as Paul instructed him to do. So they were to look at Timothy as if, the, as if Paul himself were there. The instructions that Paul gave Timothy as Timothy shared them with the church and commanded the church, they were to receive, receive them as if they were coming from Paul himself. It's a pretty big deal. Now let's look at the ministry context there in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is a profoundly remarkable city, ancient Ephesus. Uh, at the time of this writing, Ephesus was a large and influential city in the Roman Empire. Very influential city in Asia Minor. It was diverse. It was culturally rich. It was an economic, economically thriving and flourishing city. It boasted the largest amphitheater in the world at that time, seating some 25,000 people. For that time, it was massive. Oh, I'm like, wow, you go to a football stadium, it has more than that. Well, you can imagine how difficult 2,000 plus years ago, 3,000 years ago, it would have been to build something of that size and capacity. It was, it was a marvel. It was also a religiously and spiritually complex city. Its chief uh, worship, if you will, or religion 
centered around the worship of the goddess Artemis, which was also the Roman goddess Diana, right? But the Greek goddess Artemis. And there they had uh, the pride in the great temple of Artemis there in Ephesus that is considered to this day one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And much of the trade and industry of Ephesus centered around the temple life and centered around the worship uh, of Artemis. The cult of Artemis, the priests of Artemis, those who were devotees to Artemis, uh, were actually very influential. And they, the trade guilds and, and, and those of the cult worship controlled a lot of the commerce and activity in Ephesus. It was a depraved city as well. Temple prostitution uh, was legal. Uh, all sorts of debased practices uh, were found in Ephesus. It was a center of much practice of magic and sorcery and soothsaying. When you read of the revival that broke out in Exodus during one of Paul's missionary journeys there, one of the things you see is that the people who came to faith in Christ took all of their books on magic and sorcery and all the stuff and their, their pagan artifacts and they burned them. But nevertheless, the city was devoid largely of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It was a pagan city, a pagan culture. Uh, it's hard for us to even begin to understand that. We have a nation that was founded roughly on Judeo-Christian values. They're the ethic that still drive much of our society. Well, that wasn't present at all uh, at this time in the Roman Empire, and especially not there in Ephesus. So it's kind of hard for us to understand what life would be like in an environment and in a culture like that, but it would be extremely difficult to be a follower of Jesus Christ in Ephesus. But the city, and especially the church at Ephesus, was near and dear to Paul's heart. During his third missionary journey to Ephesus, he spent almost three years there, which for Paul was a long time, okay? A long time preaching and teaching, a long time ministering the gospel, helping to establish the church there. In Acts, we see there were a lot of signs and wonders uh, that took place uh, through Paul and the ministry there at Ephesus. And Timothy had accompanied him there, and again, later comes back to Ephesus with Paul after Paul's release from house arrest, and then Timothy's left there. And so here now we find the occasion for the letter because, because Paul tells us what it is. He charges, and you'll read it there in chapter 1, he charges Timothy with the task of engaging in the challenging work of combating false teaching that had arisen in the church. This is a first century church. Remember I said earlier, there's so many who are saying, let's go back to New Testament times. Well, these are New Testament times, and guess what? The same problems we see today were happening then. It doesn't take long to spoil things. It doesn't take long for the church to kind of get a little screwy because we're sinners. And because there's wicked people who want to infiltrate and, and, and skew the faith there. But, but it's important when we see that, and this charge that he gives Timothy will help us then begin to answer those questions. How do we now, as followers of Jesus Christ, remove from this time, how do we spot false teachers and teaching in our day? Specifically, he tells Paul, there are those there who are kind of abusing the law of God. They're not rightly handling the law of God, and they're disturbing the peace of the followers of Jesus Christ. 
So we're going to explore in our study of First Timothy here is what is a Christian to do with the moral law, the law that we see in the Old Testament? Are we supposed to follow it? So what does that look like? What does it mean for us to apply Old Testament laws to our lives today? Not only that, Timothy was to lead the church to faithfulness and devotion to Christ in a whole number of areas. And he was to set an example for all of the believers there by faithfully discharging his calling as a minister of the gospel. But in what ways was Paul supposed to be an example to the people? What did that look like? Look at some of the other issues that are brought up in 1 Timothy. One of the things he addresses is how men and women in the church need to be instructed about their roles and their conduct in the church gathering. How the order of public worship is established. This is a supremely relevant topic for the church of Jesus Christ today. Right? Where these aspects of complementarianism or, or egalitarianism or what's the role of women in the church? Can women be pastors and elders? Can they preach and teach? What about in the home? All these aspects of men and women's roles and how they to behave in the household of God. Well, guess what? We're not going to avoid those. We're going to dive into them, and I'm sure some of you are going to get a little torqued by that, but that's okay. He also talks about faithful men who are to be identified and appointed to the role of elders and deacons in the church. Well, who's qualified for that? How do we identify those people? What do they look like? How do we identify them? How do we bring them then into these particular roles that are defined for those who are to lead in the church of Jesus Christ. And, and, and towards the end, there's some really practical things that Paul instructs Timothy in regards to the care of certain people in the church. One of those are widows. How are widows to be cared for properly in the church? Did you know that there was a protocol for that? Did you know that God's word instructs how we're to care for people who have physical needs in the church? And how there are some people that you don't, care for their needs physically for a variety of reasons? Well, isn't the church supposed to take care of everyone's physical needs? Nope. No, not at all. Not at all. We're going to get into that. It's going to be fascinating. And lastly, he exhorts the wealthy regarding their attitude toward materials possession. What are wealthy Christians supposed to do with their wealth? That's an important topic, especially in our materialistic and consumeristic culture of our day. Now, thankfully, in this letter, we don't have to guess the purpose. We don't have to guess what is what was Paul's vision for this the writing of this letter, right? And what is it what is what is supposed to mean? Well, he gives us pretty much the thesis of this letter in 1 Timothy 3:14 and 15. And here's what Paul writes to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's the key verse of First Timothy. You know how you tell your kids how to behave when you go to someone's house? You give them instructions, don't you? <clears throat> right? Don't jump on the sofa. Let me not catch you jumping on the sofa. Don't run in the house. Don't yell. Don't scream. Don't interrupt. 
Say please. Say thank you. Right? We teach our children how to conduct themselves in our own homes and in other people's homes. Well, guess what? Christians also need to learn how to conduct themselves and behave themselves when they're gathered together. And it's a really big deal and an important deal. Right? Why? Well, he says here that the church is God's household. Have you thought about that? That the church is God's house. The whole church, yes, the church universal, but the local church, right, as a microcosm, is God's house. And people need to learn how to conduct themselves in God's house. Because God's house is not a house of chaos and disorder. It is a house of order. God is an orderly God, right? And God's people need to know what contributes to the orderly operation of God's house. Now, this isn't just about proper etiquette. All right? don't, don't get this misconstrued. It's not like uh, learn how to use your fork and your knife and you know, do it really properly and you know, how to jab your mouth when food is present there on your... No, it, it's not about those kind of things. Right? It, there's a much larger aspect here and principles that are in scope here that we are going to be looking at. But God's house is a house of order. Now, think about your own house. You, well, first of all, you know, if you ever go to someone's house and it's chaos and disorder, what that's like, right? Kids are wild. The house is a mess. That might be your house. I don't know. But you know, right? But, but you go to someone's house and, and it's crazy. Well, well, you might, how does that make you feel? Now, some of you are like OCD. So, you, like, everything in your house has got to be in order, Right? You color coordinate your socks in the drawer and they're all folded a certain way and all the cans in the pantry are lined up with the label facing, you know, to the north or however you do it. You know, everything is neat and in order and you're obsessed about that. But, but when something's not where it's supposed to be, like, that kind of drives you a little bonkers. That's when we think about our own things in our own homes. And, and, and when we say they're in some type of disorder, we're like, they're not functioning optimally, right? Our, our homes aren't functioning as we want them to be because there's something out of order. And we put a lot of time and energy in, into making our own homes function with some order. Well, how much time and energy and commitment should we put to making sure God's house has an order? And that we're doing the things that please the heart of God. Well, First Timothy is going to help us see what some of that order looks like, right? And how we conduct ourselves in accordance with it. But he also says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, this is the truth, all right? Not just truth in general, but the truth, right? So when you see the truth, we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about apostolic teaching. Largely, we're talking about all of the Word of God, all of Scripture, but the truth in general is the gospel and apostolic teaching. And the foundation upon which the the church stands, that foundation must be taught, transmitted, and fiercely protected and defended, not just by the pastors of the church, but by every member of the church, right? And we're going to have a lot to say about that. Well, let's dive into these first two verses in the remainder of our time. Let's look first at the writer of this letter, Paul, an apostle of the faith. And he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, right? No, he says Christ Jesus, but also by what? Command of God 
our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Now, if you read Paul's letters, his introductions follow a similar style here. And in nine of his 13 New Testament letters, he designates himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. A few other times he refers to himself as a servant, right? But, but most of the time he designates himself as an apostle. Well, what's an apostle? An apostle is a representative of Christ. Christ is the one who, who commissioned his apostles. They were the 12, right? We do know that one of the apostles wasn't really the, an apostle, right? He betrayed Jesus Christ. Another was established, Matthias, in his place. And we see that in Acts chapter 1. The 12 were considered Christ's representatives, Christ's ambassadors. They're the ones who carried apostolic authority to present the teachings of Christ, proclaim the gospel, and establish the church of Jesus Christ. So how does Paul, in his greeting, refer to himself in a way as one of the twelve? Why does he reference that he has this call to apostleship? Here he says, by the command of God. In other letters, he says, by the will of God. So what Paul is saying there is he's making a claim that he's an apostle just like the twelve were. Now the challenge is that the twelve, in order to be an apostle, not only did they have to walk with Jesus, be around Jesus, hear the teachings of Jesus, they actually were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ prior to his ascension. They had to see him, behold him, with their very physical eyes to attest to the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the grave well, well, that wasn't Paul. We know Paul's story, don't we? Paul persecuted the church. He was a, 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 a zealot, right? He was zealous for the, for the law. He was a, a Jew, a Pharisee, and he persecuted Christians. And we know the story in Acts that he had an encounter with Jesus Christ, but how did that make him an apostle? Well, by state, stating that his apostleship is a command of God, right, or by the will of God, he is saying that he himself did not designate himself an apostle. He's not self-appointed. I know there's a lot of dudes out there who call themselves apostles. I'm going to give you a newsflash. There are no apostles today. Not like these. Okay? Not at all. And he's not saying, I, I didn't appoint myself an apostle. In fact, none of the other apostles appointed me an apostle. No church designated or commissioned me to be an apostle, right? So how on earth can he claim to be an apostle? Because he's saying here his apostolic authority is not of human origination or ecclesiastical appointment. Not by man, not by the church, not by the other apostles. He's saying he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, meaning chosen by Christ called, commissioned, equipped, and authorized by Christ. How can that be? Well, Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, writes this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. He writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. How is it that Paul 
could claim apostleship to be like the 12 and have an apostolic authority like the 12, well, he tells us right here, it was through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, how is that, Dan? I have no idea. Jesus personally reveals himself to Paul to such a degree, to such a manner, that it is as if he was one of the twelve with being a physical eyewitness of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is profound. These are Paul's apostolic credentials, direct revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, he even tells us in his letter to Galatia, look, even when that happened to me, I didn't run off to go meet with the other apostles. It took me years even to make my way to Jerusalem. Now, later on, we see some of the apostles actually affirm his apostolic commissioning and call because they recognize the grace of God on Paul and his ministry and how he'd been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles. But first and foremost, he didn't need their affirmation. He didn't need their blessing, right? He was called and commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. So this is no mere representative of a local church that is writing to the church there at Ephesus. He is the Lord's chosen ambassador. And and God and Christ, he mentions here, both are the agents of his commission. And I love how Paul, just in his greeting, because sometimes we kind of leap over that greeting because we don't think it has a lot of important information for us. Right here in this greeting, Paul assumes the deity of Jesus Christ. It is not in question. It is not up for debate for the church. Jesus Christ is God. Plain and simple. God our Savior. Now think about that. Normally we consider Christ as Savior. That's how it's normally expressed in the New Testament. As Christ our Savior. But here it just says God our Savior. God our Savior. And Christ Jesus our hope. God, Christ, they're one and the same. Jesus is God. Christ Jesus is God. He attests to that here. But he's not only our Savior, he says he's our hope. And this is fascinating because that hope he's referring to there is not just the kind of general hope we have on a day-to-day Christian life, but but the, the hope, the blessed hope that every Christian takes comfort in. The Lord's glorious and triumphant return at the end of the age. That's the hope he's referring to here. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus locating his apostleship in that time between the beginning of Christ's redemptive work and the consummation of it at his glorious return. And his apostolic work now takes place in that interval, interval between those two times. What's he to do? Preach the gospel. Proclaim the good news to the Gentiles as he was commissioned to do all throughout the world. That redemptive work is hope for us, brothers and sisters. Why? Because what Christ began as our Savior, He will bring to completion for His chosen on the last day. What a great and glorious things. Now, why does Paul mention that he's an apostle? Was that for Timothy's sake? You think Timothy forgot that Paul was an apostle? Maybe needed to be reminded, hey, Timothy, in case you, you know, your mind's slipping, Um, I'm an apostle. That wasn't for Timothy's sake, was it? Not at all. Timothy knows he's an apostle. Who was this for then? 
This was for the benefit of everyone who would hear this message, the message of this letter as it was read to the church. This is why it's important for everyone. This wasn't just for Timothy. The assumption here is that this letter is going to, he's going to stand up there before the congregation and he's going to read this message from Paul, an apostle of the Lord. And it starts off so that everyone knows it is coming from Paul, who's commissioned by Jesus Christ. What's it doing? It's adding that necessary requisite gravitas, right? The weight of apostolic authority is upon the very words that are going to be transmitted from Timothy's lips to the ears of every believer who's going to hear it. The message is of apostolic origin, so it carries apostolic authority, and that means it is binding on the church. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Now, as we're going to read in this letter, there were those who were causing trouble in the church. I don't know if you've been in, in the church long, but if, you, if you've been in the church for a while, you know there are troublemakers in the church. I know that's not anybody in this room, right? I'm speaking to all the saints here. But generally, stop pointing at people. No, generally, every church is going to have troublemakers. Every church is going to have knuckleheads. Every church is going to have people who kind of stir up a little bit of strife and division. And there's some drama queens out there, right? Going back to the warts and flaws and stuff. Like every church is going to have them. Well, you can imagine that they need to be warned from time to time, right? And this letter, when it comes to the church this way, by means of an apostle, right? It's is to deal with those particular things. And obviously there's the more serious matters of the false teaching and, and those kind of things. But you're going to see in this letter, he's also going to address some other things that are, are very important, right? So this letter brings with it the necessary weight because why? It's authoritative. It's from an apostle who's under orders from God and is now bringing orders from God to the church. And, and look at, the, look at the, the method of the transmission of this message. It's from Christ Jesus to Paul to Timothy, and to the church. Orders, boom, 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 being transmitted and delivered, carrying the authority of Jesus Christ himself. So that's a big deal for us, isn't it? This is why this matters to each one of us. This letter is God's word, so it is authoritative. We've talked quite a bit about that over the past few weeks. That means... As God's people, we submit ourselves to its teaching, whether we like it or not, whether it makes us uncomfortable or not, right? We submit to its instruction, its teaching, and the commands because they're just as much for us today as they were for these first century believers. And yes, we're going to do proper exegesis like we've talked about. And we're going to interpret these passages. And we're going to learn how to apply these passages to our time and day and transmit it over there. But sometimes, brothers and sisters, the plain reading of the scripture as it was then in the first century is how we're to receive it today. And that gets a lot of people's undergarments in a bunch, as they say. All right, let's move on now to look at Timothy, right? So we've got the sender of this letter, Paul, though the recipient of this letter is Timothy. To Timothy, 
He writes, my true child in the faith. Again, Timothy, Paul's faithful traveling companion. Um, Timothy's mentioned a lot in the New Testament, which is pretty awesome. And we can kind of piece together really cool biographical sketch uh, of, of this amazing man of God. But he likely came to faith at a very young age. Uh, in fact, we know from, from Paul's writing here that Timothy's grandmother and his mother came to faith under this apostle's ministry, most likely during his first missionary journey. Right? They came to faith in Jesus Christ. They were Jews, his mother and his grandmother. Uh, we know that Timothy, from a young age, knew the scripture, right? He, so he would have been steeped in, in the law, the prophets, the Torah. He understood all of those particular things as a young man. Uh, and we find out that the apostle in Acts, we, we read that he meets Timothy in Lystra during Paul's second missionary journey. Now, it's likely he came to faith in Christ as by hearing the gospel maybe from his grandmother and his mother. Isn't that cool? How important it is, moms and grandmas, right, to make sure, like we, we put a lot of emphasis on the guys making sure they're teaching their children and, and, and preaching the gospel to their kids, but my goodness, Look at that. What a legacy there of faith. Teach the gospel to your kids, right? This, this is profound. But he references him here now as my true child in the faith. In fact, he refers to him as his child in multiple letters. As a son to a father, he writes in Philippians. But he says here, my true child. That word true means authentic. And that word was used largely to speak of a legitimate child, a child who was legitimate. That was a child actually born, not out of wedlock, but in wedlock, right? A legitimate child, you know? So it means authentic. And it's a term that Paul is using here, yes, one of great affection, because Timothy is uh, Paul's spiritual son in the faith. He, he mentored Timothy. He brought him under his wings. He, he took him on his missionary travels. Timothy became a trusted and faithful companion, someone in whom Paul depended greatly upon. But there's a little bit more to this. By using that word true, it, it kind of harkens back to Timothy's upbringing here. Because Timothy's mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek. And because his father was Greek, that made him illegitimate in terms of Jewish law and custom. And this was a big deal, especially when you're preaching the gospel to the Jews here. And under Jewish laws, he'd be seen as illegitimate. When Paul met him, we know that he wasn't circumcised. And that's a big deal if you're a Jewish boy. Because to be circumcised means that you're part of the covenant. You are in the covenant. You have access to all of the ceremonial laws, all of the feasts, all of the worship that would take place in the temple, you'd be recognized as a recipient of the covenantal blessings of Yahweh. But Timothy was not circumcised, which tells us that he really wasn't raised much in the Jewish faith. So when Paul brings Timothy along with him and he's interacting with the Jews, that became a big deal. So much so that as an adult, Paul pays to have Timothy circumcised so he would be accepted when he went to preach the gospel. Now, he does not do the same thing with Titus later. When we get to some of those things, we'll talk a little bit more of the reasons why uh, he didn't do that. 
But that's, those are some of the things we know about Timothy. So to the Jews, he would have been seen as illegitimate. But Paul is saying he's his true child in the faith. He's legitimate. He is as true a son to Paul as if he came from Paul's loins. That, that's what he's stating with this. And by affirming Timothy's genuineness, Paul is reaffirming Timothy's authority in the church. They are to look at Timothy as if he was Paul's biological son. That's what he's doing here. Like he's propping Timothy up in a sense so that they will respect him. They will receive from him and they will recognize his authority in the church. So it's not just a tender greeting, which it is, but it is, it is strengthening Timothy so that the church will recognize Paul's seal of approval on Timothy. That's a big deal. It's a big deal because we're going to look at a few things about Timothy, why he may have needed this kind of reassurance as well. Now, again, Timothy is mentioned more frequently than anyone in Paul's letters. He's listed as co-sender in six of Paul's New Testament letters. So a lot of influence. You know, he, he, he was very instrumental and very involved in the churches that were founded under Paul's ministry. In Philippians 2.22, he writes, but you know Timothy's proven worth. Listen to that language. You know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. That is so beautiful. Timothy was a man of proven character. He had a solid reputation and testimony with the church. It was his faith in Christ that led to his faithfulness in serving both Christ and then Paul, so much so that he became a valuable member of Paul's ministry team and a valuable member of Paul's inner circle. Timothy is going to serve for us to be a great example of faithfulness as we go through this letter. But here are a few of the other things we learn about Timothy in the New Testament. He has some areas in which he needed strong encouragement from Paul because these areas could be limiting and debilitating factors in Timothy's effectiveness in ministry. I'm going to give you three of them. The first is that Timothy was young. He was young. Perhaps because of his youthfulness, which we'll define in a moment, he felt inadequate to the task, inadequate to the the weight of the responsibility that Paul was placing upon him. To others in the congregation, in the church, his youthfulness could be perceived as inexperience or immaturity, right? He didn't have enough life experience. Now, when he says he's, he's young, right? Because later on, he's going to tell Timothy, right? Don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. That's a Fantastic. A lot of youth pastors like to use that with their high schoolers and middle schoolers. But let's define young. Was Timothy a teenager? No, he wasn't a teenager, right? I've heard, when I've heard of Timothy being preached over the years, people talk about him. He's probably in his 20s. He was a young pastor at this time. He wasn't in his 20s. It, it's very impossible for him to have been that young. Remember, this is 14 years after he met Paul and became a traveling companion of Paul. Do you think Paul would take a teenager, 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, right, on these missionary travels? That's not likely, is it? 
most believe, and, and early writings, you know, closer to this time, have put Timothy uh, at the age of going out with Paul on his missionary travels somewhere in his mid-twenties at that time. Early to mid-twenties. That's when Paul began to take him out. So 14 years later, well, that puts us what? He's like in his mid-thirties to maybe early forties, as old as age. And you're like, a 40-year-old young man? That kind of gives me some confidence and hope myself. Can we extend that out into our 50s? No. <laughs> right? But, but, but he's talking about him being young here. Right? Well, think about it. To the older people, especially in these ancient cultures, right? That age, a 30-something, even a 40-something, would be seen as someone inexperienced to an older person. And it would be very difficult for them to receive counsel from someone with a little Life experience, or with little life experience, as Timothy might have had here. Now, again, putting yourself in the culture, in the time of these things. There is wisdom in that. I've talked to a lot of young pastors over my time in ministry who have had difficult times uh, being able to counsel those who were much older than them in the church. Hard for older people to respect many times those who are younger because you say, well, what, is, what do they have to teach me? What do they know about life? So I personally am not an advocate of putting a 20-year-old into a pastorate. You really don't know anything about life at that point. Okay? There has to be some seasoning. There has to be, I'm not saying there's a definite age, but, but Paul is bringing this up for a point. That Timothy was seen, perceived to be inexperienced, Right to be placed in this incredible role of responsibility by Paul, the apostle of the Lord. And Paul needed to encourage him in this area to not let anyone despise him for his youth. The second thing is that we know about Timothy is that he struggled with timidity. Fear, fearfulness in certain areas. We're not exactly sure what that looks like, but, but he needed affirmation, encouragement, and reassurance in this area of timidity. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, the second letter Paul writes to Timothy, this is about two years later, uh, removed from this particular letter, he writes, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now we usually quote that little passage, that little verse outside of it, But it's written to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, my son, right? Listen, remember, be encouraged. Fan into flame that gift of God, right? We laid hands on you. We commissioned you. We sent you out. God hasn't given us a spirit of fearfulness. We don't have a spirit of timidity, but but of power and love and sound mind or self-control, depending on your translation here. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, writes about Timothy, Okay, And he encourages those believers in Corinth to actually help Timothy in this area. 1 Corinthians 16, 10 through 11. Paul writes the conclusion of his letter. When Timothy comes, because Timothy was being dispatched by Paul, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Right? 
was something about Paul's, uh, of Timothy's temperament. Maybe he, he felt intimidated. You know, maybe he didn't feel up to the task that Paul was sending him to do. That even Paul saying, hey, Timothy's on his way. Can I go easy on him? <laughs> put him, put him at, don't give him a hard time for the love of all that is good and holy. You know, make sure no one despises him and then you can send him off in peace. The third thing is that Timothy was sickly. He was a sickly fellow. He had some gastrointestinal issues. Right? We don't know specifically, but Paul tells him in what probably is a life verse for some of you. He says, drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Right? He writes to him at the end of this letter. Right? There was something going on. There was, there was aspects of continual infirmity, ailments, um, you know, that probably plagued him throughout his life. And that was a source of, uh, of difficulty uh, for Timothy and maybe in how he actually discharged his ministry. So Timothy was young, Timothy was timid, and Timothy was sickly. Those things alone would be enough to disqualify him from taking charge of the church at Ephesus. If we were looking at this from a worldly point of view. Like who would hire a fearful and feeble, inexperienced person to take on this enormous task of of putting a church in order and countering false teaching and teachers and regulating the life of the church? And here is where you and I, brothers and sisters, need to be reminded that the church functions not as the world functions. That the church is not patterned after the way the world patterns its affairs and business. Because Timothy's qualifications for leading in this church was not that he was some powerful CEO type with a type A personality, alpha male. He was not someone with an impressive resume of accomplishments. And it wasn't even that he was some tall, dark handsome dude with an incredible physique and jawline that when people looked at him, they were like in awe. Here is Adonis. No, he wasn't eloquent. He wasn't dynamic. What were his qualifications then? His qualifications were that he was faithful. He was faithful. He was strong, not like the world thinks of strength, but he was strong in the faith. He was strong in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his qualifications were that he was tested in the furnace of affliction, in the furnace of suffering and trials, and his faith is proven to be tried and true. That's good news for us, brothers and sisters. I read that about Timothy, and I get excited considering myself. And you should get excited, because I know there are many in the church who feel that God can't use them. And they think that because the church has foolishly propped up some standard of what it's supposed to look like to be a man and woman in the ministry. And we have these clown celebrity pastors out there in their skinny jeans holding their coffee cup with their wife standing next to them. And what are they doing? Presenting something false and worldly and fleshly. And everyone looks at them going like, I can never be like them. I can't. Yeah, thank God it's right. And they think God can't use me. If that's the standard, if that's what it looks like, then, well, I can't speak like that. 
I don't know God's work like that. I'm not a powerful orator. I, I'm not someone who can get up there and lead a, a large ministry or a church. That's not what God's looking for here. Here's the thing. God uses the weak and foolish things of the world to shame the strong and the wise. That means God can use you. God can use me. Because his qualifications are faithfulness to him. So be strong in the gospel and you will be a vessel that God can always use for his glory, brothers and sisters. That's good news. And I love when we look at Timothy, when we look at his life, I want you to be encouraged by what you see in his life. Lastly, let's look now at what unites us in the faith. This last verse, verse, the end of verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's customary way of ending his salutation and introductory remarks is with a prayer and a blessing. Grace, mercy, peace. What is it that binds Paul and Timothy and the believers at Ephesus and all of us who are in Christ Jesus? What unites us is our common share in the grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The grace of God unites us, brothers and sisters. The grace, God's kindness expressed to us who are holy, undeserving, guilty, rebellious, and condemned. To us, God shows his mercy. What's his mercy? His mercy is God's pity on us. Pity on us who are wretched and poor and naked and blind, who have nothing to offer God and unable to rescue ourselves from our filth and our sin. And God has mercy on us. And the peace of God, God's reconciliation of rebel sinners, right? Those who were hostile to God, enemies of God. Against everything that God represents. And what does God do? God makes enemies his friends. He reconciles us through the blood of Jesus Christ. How beautiful is that? The source of grace, mercy, and peace are from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The triune God extends his grace and favor to undeserving rebel sinners and makes his enemies his friends through the atoning work of Christ. So here we have Paul's apostleship is from God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. And now these divine blessings are from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He bookends his greeting with that beautiful reality of our union with God. Grace, mercy, and peace. These are the things we have in common. These are the things that unite us. His grace brought you into union with Christ. And it also brings you into union with your brothers and sisters in the faith. Those are the things we can take comfort in. Those are the things that should fill each of us with hope and with joy. You don't deserve God's grace. You don't deserve God's mercy. You don't deserve God's peace. But praise God, as Paul says to Timothy in this, in this chapter we'll read later, Christ came to save sinners. 
of which Paul says, I'm the foremost, man. We talk about chief sinner, that was me. And Christ came to save sinners. Take comfort in that. If you don't know Christ this way, if you've not tasted of the grace and mercy and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, I implore you to do that today. We recognize that we come with empty hands to God. There's nothing that we can offer God. There's no righteousness. There's not enough good deeds I could do in this life that will tip the balance, the scales of of God's righteous requirements, His justice. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The standard isn't how good I am compared to the next person in my life or the next person that I know. Or I'm, I'm not as much of a sinner as this one or that one over there. The standard is the holiness of God to which no one can compare. And if it was left like that, oh, what misery, what misery would befall humanity. But God in His kindness, God in His gracious in His graciousness and mercy, extends this offer of salvation to all of us to take and receive and believe and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That He can rescue, He can save, He can forgive you. He can make you clean. He can make you a new creation in Him so that you can have this very same hope that Paul talks about here. Well, I'll close with a quote I opened with. Wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, there a church of God exists, even if it swarms with many faults. I want to encourage you, don't focus on the flaws of the church and the faults of the church. Don't be a professional critic of the church. See the beauty of the church that has received the grace, mercy, and peace of God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord.